Ooh, man, I don't know about you guys, but that song always gets me. What a stunning, stunning song. If you haven't um, before, just really unpack those lyrics. Spend some time in doing that. It, um, it is beautiful. Sermons come in you in different, different ways, weird ways. Inspiration strikes in ways that you never expect. I don't know about you. I have a tendency, a flaw as a person, many flaws as a person, as my wife will attest. But one of my biggest is YouTube rabbit holes. Start watching a video. You get done with the video and another one pops up. And you're like, oh, that's cool. And then you watch another one and another one and another one and another one. My YouTube channel is an absolute mess. Like, if the things that are on there is hilarious. Uh, I'm a big sports guy, big into, like, fantasy football, so I have a lot of, like, analytics and numbers, a lot of highlights of obscure high school players that are going to be joining college soon. Started watching one of some of those. Then I, there was a lecture by N.T. Wright on justification theory, so I listened to that. And then I just kept going, all sorts of random stuff, until I got to a TED Talk. And I was like, nah, I'm not interested in that. But it got me thinking, TED Talks, why do they become so popular? For those of you who don't know what a TED Talk is, 1984, two CEOs got together and said, hey, there's a lot of people that don't have access to the information we have access to because, well, we're, we're wealthy. And what if we could get experts of their field to come and hold conferences in which they talk about what they're experts on and people come and listen? That way everyone can learn. Everyone can have access to the experts that before were unattainable. So since 1984, 1 1.2 billion people have watched TED Talks, learning everything from art to fitness to philosophy, even theology, morality, science, anything you want, there's a TED Talk on. Despite being a nonprofit, last year they netted $76.5 million. Their success? Simple. Let's get an expert to talk about things people want to hear about. People like experts. We trust them. We go to them. I don't know about you, but I am inept with money, and so I have a guy I go to. And he tells me what to do with it. I don't always listen, but I always should. I have a doctor for when I'm feeling sick. I go to him. Why? He's the expert on medicine. What should I do different? Eat less food. What else can I do that's different? <laughs> and on and on we go, spending our time. Trusting the experts. We have a lot of names for Jesus in the Bible. Prince of Peace, King, Savior, Messiah, all of those are true. But this morning I want us to use a different title. An expert on life living. An expert on life living. Because the reality is all of us struggle in this field. All of us at different times struggle with trying to find a life that's worth living. How many days go by that we look back on and say, I just wasn't in it today? How many times a day do we look around it and just aren't happy, aren't full of joy or full of peace, or are just kind of eh, and we just kind of keep rolling? All of us need to get better on this idea of life living, especially when you listen to what the Bible says about life. It's supposed to be the biggest gift, the biggest honor. It's supposed to be so rich and full every moment. And yeah, I don't know about you, but I would say that my life is rich about 8% of the time. 92% of the time it goes completely eh, for lack of a better word. This morning I want us to listen to, sounds weird to say it this way, Jesus' TED Talk on life living. 
Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Go ahead and turn there. Don't worry, we're not going to go through all of it. That's three chapters. Usually I do a sermon about like one verse. So we're going to be hitting and moving. By the way, this is the, the last opportunity. Speak now or forever. Hold your peace. Get the QR code. Three, two, I don't see any phones. Okay. As you're turning there, let's talk a little bit about this expert that we have in Jesus when it talks about the idea of life living. In John chapter 10, he defines his purpose of coming to earth as coming so that we can have life and have it to the fullest. We can live a life worth living, which makes sense because that's pretty consistent with Jesus from the very beginning. In John chapter 1 and verse 4, it says that Jesus is life. And all things that were made were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Jesus has always been in the life-giving business. But when we say things like that, usually we mean exclusively eternal life, or heaven. No, Jesus is in the life of now, too. He comes to bring life to us now, too. Meaningful, enriching, full, and powerful life. As I was preparing for this lesson, I was reflecting back on other times I've taught on this. Sermon on the Mount is a topic I frequently go to for a variety of reasons, one of which I find it absolutely stunning. No matter how many times I read it, there's something else the Holy Spirit seems to be smacking me upside the head with. But as I was looking in my notes of all the different times I've taught on different things about the, the Sermon on the Mount, I always have these footnotes that I write to myself. Hey, next time, do this. Next time, don't do this. A lot of those are, you guys are guinea pigs, where if I teach on something, and I look out and all of you look asleep, I make a note. And I'm like, okay, that did not land. And there are times where I'm like, okay, that did land, and we move on. As I was reviewing my notes, it was amazing how many times I had the note under it, I got a lot of pressure and fight for this. So I started remembering, why? It's the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, we teach it to little kids. It's easy. But then I started remembering conversations I've had with people, conversations I've had with myself. Where we hear what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, but we always end it with a, but, and then we, we make it not as harsh. Well, but, but surely Christ didn't mean, well, yes, usually, but sometimes we, because what Jesus says is hard. So I, I worked this week to try to find a way to do this sermon where I don't make people angry at me. So what I decided to do was pass the buck entirely. I keep moving this. So today's sermon is going to be primarily focused on the Holy Spirit in your life. I'm going to offer you a challenge. You can challenge me afterwards. Tell me that this didn't work. But here's my challenge to you. At some point in this lesson this morning, you will get offended by something Jesus says. You'll read it and you'll go, okay, and your first instinct is going to be to go, whoa, 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 but Jesus, clearly you don't mean that I actually have to do this. Clearly you couldn't have meant that. And in that moment, when you feel that instinct, I want you to challenge yourself that maybe that's exactly what the Holy Spirit's trying to get you to think right now. Maybe that's exactly the lesson or thought you need right now. As we go through, I want you to consider of your quote, but statements. Every time I read one of the commands and your first instinct is, well, 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 now th that is impossible. Maybe that's exactly why Jesus said it. 
Because maybe you needed to hear it today. This is a little stressful as a preacher. Usually I come in with a very clear expectation of what my outcome is. Right? I want everyone to leave being able to do or say this thing. To know this thing. This morning I have no idea how it's going to hit you. If I were to ask ten of you, you might have ten different answers. But I think that's okay. Jesus has a lot to say. And we need to be people who are willing to listen. Also, just a caveat, the idea of expert, uh, as it's defined here, is that when Jesus claims to be the expert of life living, and our first instinct is to say, no, 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 clearly you don't mean, you're saying one of three things to Jesus. Either first you're saying, you're not who you claim you are. I know you claim to be the the life-giving Savior, the one who can bring a life worth living, but you're wrong here. Therefore, he isn't who he claims to be. If you look at Jesus after reading this and say, well, clearly you couldn't have meant that, that also could mean that you're making yourself the life-giving expert, claiming to know more than him. Or the third and most difficult, maybe we just take him at his word. Believe the expert on life living as we move forward. Jesus never says it'll be easy. In fact, at the middle of his sermon on this, He ends it with uh, this line behind us. We always talk about this in salvation, terms of salvation. It's not in terms of salvation if you read the context. It's specifically about the lesson he's preaching in that moment. What he's saying is, this is the way that you can find a life worth living. This is the way you can have a life. Here it is, I'm laying it out before you, and most people won't listen to it. But for those of you who do, there's going to be a life worth living on the other side. Let's see what happens today. Behind you, you're going to see it on your app. You'll see that there's an opportunity for engagement. I would invite you to wait until we go through all and vote on the one that you find the hardest of these commands. Maybe for you, it's one of the but statements that Jesus has here. Maybe it's one of those where he says something and your first instinct is to fight back. We're going to be breaking up his sermon into three sections and we're going to move pretty quickly because as I said, there are three chapters of the Bible to cover in 11, 12, 13 math in some minutes. So, let's start by breaking up the three categories. We're going to talk about how to live life with ourself, how to live life with others, and how to live life with God. And in this way, we kind of talk about all the commands he brings here. But let's start with the way to live life with ourselves, because we spend the most time with us. And often, that's not a good thing. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 37 Like I said, I'm not going to read all of these passages. I encourage you this week to read the whole Sermon on the Mount. I can't do it here. So we're just going to touch on it. It says, when you're talking, say yes when you mean yes, and no when you mean no, Jesus says. Anything more than that comes from the evil one. On the surface, the lesson is simple. Be honest. But more than that, be the kind of person who is honest. That is different, by the way. I can be honest, or I can be an honest person. Being an honest person means that at the very core of who I am, I am 100% me all the time. What I say, I mean. And what's on the inside comes out. Be honest, Jesus says. For everything else comes from the evil one. Any form of dishonesty, any mask at all that we put on is intrinsically from Satan, not from God. He's saying rip it all off and be 100% you all the time. Embrace it. 
Be willing to accept that. People are not listening to instructions. I bet I know what section right over there is probably the, the troublemakers. This idea of honesty, though, is more than just in the way we interact with others, but the way we interact with ourselves. The easiest person to lie to is yourself. The easiest person to lie to is yourself. I do it all the time. I can handle this. Nope. I can... Nope. I will... Nope. I can't tell you how many times I've started here by saying, this is the year I only eat vegetables. And by January 3rd, I'm down in a rare ribeye. I can't tell you how many times I've thought, this is the year I'm going to work out more, and clearly, 26 years, I'm still waiting. I lie to myself often, and most of them are small. But sometimes I lie to myself in big ways, too. Jesus says, if you're going to live a life worth living, be honest to yourself. Live a life of honesty in all situations. Second, we see in... We're going to skip ahead to Matthew chapter 6, verses 20 through 21. It says this. I'll read starting in verse 19. Don't store up treasure on earth. Moth and rust will eat it away. Robbers will break in and steal it. No, store up, this is where it gets important, store up yourself treasures in heaven. Moth and rust don't eat it away there, and no robber will break in and steal it. Show me your treasure, and I'll show you where your heart is. Finding security in God, not in yourself or the world around you. Don't know if you check out the news very often. I don't, and when I don't, I'm actually happier. Because the world is constantly in turmoil all the time, and if you allow it to, you'll always feel off kilter. There is no way not to. That's just the nature of the world we live in. We get so obsessed with everything around us that we lose it. We lose our footing. We lose our direction. Jesus is saying the only way to do that, the only way to live a life worth living is sacrificing that and finding all of your security in God. Because guess what? Things don't change with him. He will never change. The world may come and go. Nations may rise and fall. The economy may skyrocket or plummet. You may have a job. You may not have a job. You may have loved ones. You may not have loved ones. One thing will never change in your life, and that's God. You want a life worth living? Put your security in him and him alone. Because he will never leave nor forsake you. Like that, and a couple verses later in verse 24, Jesus says, don't put your trust in money. Nobody can serve two masters. He says it like this. Otherwise, they will hate the first and love the second, or be devoted to the first and despise the second. You can't serve God and wealth. A couple weeks ago, dad gave a sermon that I did not like, and it was on the idea of greed. And it was because I always thought I never was greedy. Because, don't know if you, know, you guys know this, I don't have a lot of money. I mean, so that obviously is not my command. But it actually is because I can tell you how much of my day and my life revolves around money. I don't mean it to. Constantly I'm thinking about it. Constantly I'm worried about it. Constantly it's on my brain. And God is saying, you want a life worth living? Don't worry about that. Because let me tell you, money will come and go. It'll be here one day and it won't be here the next. If you allow your trust to go there, then you'll be, well, you'll be in a really bad place most of the time. One thing interesting about money, this is one of those but statements I always get. Paul says that money is the root of all sorts of evil. And this is dangerous. 
Because it's not wrong to have it, but it's wrong to be tight-fisted with it. It's wrong when it decides what you do. It's wrong when it infiltrates your heart and in your brain because that leads you down so many bad paths. That's why Jesus was honest when he said, hey, if you've got money, be careful because it's really hard to get to heaven with it. You've got to work harder when you have that distraction on your mind. Trusting in God, not in your pocketbook. Then we get the big one. The granddaddy of them all, do not worry. Which, I, yeah, I imagine that one's going to be everyone's number one. It is so easy to worry. Worry about everything all the time. I do worry about everything all the time. I'm the kind of guy who sets reservations for like an 1130 lunch because I don't like not being in control of things. I constantly am anxious about something. Let me also say that's not a way to live life. God spends a, a large majority of this sermon specifically talking about that. Do not worry. Why? Well, he gives you the answer. I don't want to spoil it. You should read it on your own time. But do not worry. Every single moment you spend in worry detracts from your enjoyment of life. Every single moment you allow worry in your heart and brain is a moment that you've lost the joy of life. That's why Paul uses the words, keep every thought captive. It's a battle with your brain constantly. The minute you feel anxiety, to push it away and grab onto something else, because if you hold on even just for a moment to anxiety, it'll overwhelm you. Do not worry, Jesus says. Why? Because worry will flood you. So live life instead and trust. Again, easier said than done. But we'll get there. Finally, the last thing he says is be who you are. Now, there's a lot to go into here. We don't have time. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 24 is where you should go. But what he's offering is this. Be authentic. If you're struggling, struggle. If you're hurting, hurt. If you're falling short, admit it. If you're failing, say it. Because you are who you are right now. And you can't be anyone else. And by the way, the only way you can ever become something better than you are right now is by admitting where you are and letting God help you the rest of the way. In the church, by the way, we struggle with this a lot. A lot. Because we all want to look good all the time. But we're not. You know, I have in my notes here something that I didn't know if I was going to do, but I'm going to do it real quick. I struggle a lot with pride, anxiety, concern. I often don't trust God with things that are very practical, like money. I, I often don't let go of it. I struggle a lot with anxiety, sometimes depression. I have a lot of things that go in my head. Satan is constantly there, and he knows exactly what to do. I'm not perfect, and I'm here today, not because I'm perfect, but because I'm not, and I need him. I struggle in so many ways, so many hours of every day. That's who I am. And the only way I'll get better is by saying that. Where are you? And who are you? Authentically and really. So now you can vote. I think you guys mostly have as we go through. But I'm interested to see kind of where we stand on this. Because if I'm being honest, that's probably my order. That's probably my order. Jesus is challenging me to live a better life for ourselves. Next. By the way, like with always, first point's always the longest. It gets quicker from here. 
I think it's because the caffeine starts kicking in more. I think I start talking faster. Warning in advance. This is the hardest one for me, the section that has the most but statements for me. The moment where I often want to argue with Christ. No, 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 God, don't mean that. Because I struggle with all of these things pretty much all the time. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. Jesus says, you have heard it written, do not murder. I tell you something different. Do not be angry with a brother. Oh, don't be angry with people. See, this idea in Christianity that it's okay to be mad is not true. It's not okay to be angry with people. It's okay to be angry with sin, God says to. It's okay to be angry at injustice, God says to. But the idea that we have the right to be mad at people is not true. And by the way, that's for our benefit, not for his. Because the reality is, when I get angry, it takes 13 hours, did some research on this, for your brain's chemical balance to go back after getting angry. That's why if you wake up in the morning and the first thing that happens makes you mad, you're done for the day. Everything's going to set you off. Why? Because it takes 13 hours for your brain to recover. Christ is saying you cannot live an enjoyable life where you're angry all the time. That's not okay. So here's what I'm going to do. God says, I'll take the anger. Let me be angry. I'll worry about anger. I'll worry about that. You just live your life. Some dude cuts me off on the interstate. Okay. More seriously, someone really does hurt me and harm me in a bad way. It's easy for my reaction to be like, I'm angry and I'm justified to be angry. And God goes, no, you're not. Let me be angry. Paul writes it like this. Do not avenge yourself. Let the Lord avenge you. Let it go. Every moment you succumb to anger is a day you're losing. Literally, a day you're losing. Don't be angry. Let it go. By the way, 13 hours, that is a long time. I could tell you there has been so many times where something happens so small in the day that I completely forget about, and then all of a sudden I'm having an argument with someone at the end of the day, and I'm sitting there going, how did I get here? And I tie it all the way back to some moron on 33, or the fact that, you know, I woke up and someone dropped a thing of salt and it cracked my windshield, or whatever. That actually happened. You can tell I'm still pretty mad about that. <laughs> this whole lesson's about honesty, I guess, so here we are. The next, don't objectify. Uh, Matthew 5, 28, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery. What is he saying? Don't objectify people based on their physical attraction. They are more than sexual items. It's pretty self-explanatory. God has valued every single person based on the intrinsic worth of his own spirit and the blood of his son. Value people, not their looks. Every time we objectify someone, what we're doing is devaluing them in our eyes and necessarily devaluing them in God's. Except for the fact that, you know, his view never changes. It's ours that do. Do not objectify. We move on. This is always the hardest part of sermons is like cutting on the fly. I promise you, I could go an hour and a half on this, but y'all have lunch plans. Um, let's go down to verse 42. The next thing he says is, do not resist an evildoer, and this is a big one. Do not resist an evildoer, he says. And then he gives some examples. By the way, this is, sometimes we lose the comedy of Christ. 
I wish that we would understand how funny Jesus was so many of the times. He was not boring to listen to. We sometimes think he was, like an emotionless robot who just recited things. Uh, no. In fact, in this, he gives a great example. He says, don't resist an evildoer. Someone does something to you, don't do it back. That's simple. But then he gives some examples. He doesn't say do nothing. He just says don't resist their way back at them. In Roman culture, I could backhand someone with my right hand against their cheek if I was superior to them. In Roman culture, husbands were superior to wives, and husbands were superior to children. The rich were superior to the poor. Romans were superior to non-Romans. You could legally walk around and anyone you wanted to without any cause. However, it was shameful in Roman society to do it open-palmed because that meant you lost your temper. I don't know why they determined that, that this is totally okay, but this, same action, not okay, but here we are. And so what Jesus said here is very interesting. He says, if someone smacks you with their right hand, you can't stop that from happening. You can't. But then I want you to mess up the system, whereas you should walk away cowering in fear, stick out your other cheek. Imagine this for a second. I get hit like this. They can't backhand me with their right hand again this way. I'm forcing them to open their palm to treat me as an equal. Smack me again, this time, together, as like you and I are on the same level. Jesus is saying subvert the system, not don't do anything, but resist in a new way. Don't don't retaliate by punching them back. In court, he gives another funny example, where he says, let's say someone's suing you for your coat, take off all of your clothes and give it to them. In Roman society, if you were unclothed, if you were naked, then you were shaming the people who were seeing you. You weren't shamed, but the people who were seeing you were shamed. So what's Jesus saying in a very comedic way? If you get to court and you're getting sued, literally shame them in your generosity. Brother's just dying laughing over there. Be mature, Daniel. Come on. But it's that idea of shaming people in generosity. What's he saying? Don't retaliate the way they do it, but subvert the system in a new way. How are we doing that? Do we often retaliate anger to anger? Insult to insult? Devalue to devalue? Are we in the currency of the world, or are we, subs- are we subverting the system all the way around and trying something new? Next, we have give without expectation of return. Jesus says, but as for you, give without expectation of return. I just kind of copy and pasted that one. Just give without expectation of return. Generosity is something you don't have a choice, and that's something you have to do as a Christian. I'm sorry, but that is. Which means we're so concerned all the time about, you know, making sure that people hit the right prerequisites before we help, or whatever. Jesus says help and worry about the other stuff later. Is our first reaction as people to reach out with an open hand to help, or to not? Jesus says, even if you give your life giving to everyone, not just in money, but in anything, I'll fill you up. You just keep giving. And don't expect anything in return. Next, Matthew chapter 5, verse... Whoop! No, no. Matthew chapter 5, verse 45 says, Love indiscriminately. As the sun shines and the rain falls, he says, so that you can be children like your heavenly Father. Love indiscriminately. Again, this is one of those things that God's doing it for our benefit. Just love. That's our responsibility. When you meet someone, care for them. And love them. That's our responsibility. Going hand in hand with that, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 says, Do not judge, again, for our benefit. We don't have to run around and try to be the police to all. 
We don't have to make snap judgments and who's right, who's wrong all the time, constantly. This person is more righteous than this person who's more righteous than this person, but I'm more righteous than this person, and that guy over there, don't get me started on. That's not, the oblig- that's not our responsibility. God says love indiscriminately. You do that. I'll take care of everything else. Don't judge. Just spend your time free of that. And by the way, that's enjoyable when we don't have to worry about judging everyone all the time. And we could just worry about me. And you could just worry about you. And we could worry about love. And lastly, living with God. This is where we're going to wrap up. God says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, that he expects righteousness, not rightness. Let me tell you, he says, unless, you're, unless your behavior is far superior to that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Who knew the law? That would be the Pharisees and scribes. They knew it all. And they had the rightness of beliefs down, but they didn't have a righteous life down. What God is saying is, if you want to be close to me, live like me, and I'll meet you in your actions. Does God also meet us in his word? Yes, we should study. Does God also meet us in prayer? Yes, we should pray. But God meets us in a practical way when we're, when we're doing what he would do in the world around us. When you're helping, serving, or caring, that's when you're going to experience Christ on a far new level. Unless your behavior is different than that of the Pharisees. Not your words, not your accuracy, not your biblical knowledge, but your actions. Where are your actions? Because God wants righteousness, not rightness. No, stop doing that. Second, we see that God wants us to be intimate with him in Matthew chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, which, by the way, this is another really fun thing that I found as we were studying. He says, don't do stuff like everyone else. Don't pray in a way that like, everyone has to hear you, or if you're fasting, make yourself look gaunt and tired. If you're trying to serve, making sure you make a big show about it. If you're going to drop some money in the contribution, don't like strut over there so people are watching how much you drop in. That's not what he's saying. He's saying something even more than that. He's saying, I, God, want this to be intimate between you and me. It's not just don't do it for show, but he's saying, how about let this be an us thing, just a you and me thing. God wants to meet us in an intimate way in our actions with him, close-knit, one-on-one. God asks us to be intimate with him, not to get lost in the legalistic approaches, not to get lost in what we're doing, but who we're doing it with. Next, pray honestly. This one I struggle with. My prayers are not honest most of the time. Maybe yours are. Because my prayers, he gives an example in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 15, my prayers often don't involve real emotions. If I'm angry with God, I never start a prayer with, dear God, I'm mad at you right now. But man, I should. Because the times I have is when I've really grown. God, I'm doubting you. I don't even know if you're real today. God, I'm stressed about money, and I don't trust that you're going to get me through it. You know what's interesting? There's been a lot of prayers that have gone unanswered for me. Those aren't them. Because God cares. An honest prayer works. Are you being honest with God in your prayer life? Telling him actually what's going on, not the the masked up version, not the prescribed prayers that we can recite without thinking about it, the real meaningful, influential prayers where you invite God in and say, what's your feeling? and what you need from him in an authentic way. That's important. But often we don't do it well. And lastly, and this is one that, uh, that we actually spent a lot of time in the Darby household talking about. Asking and seeking and knocking in Matthew 7. 
Ask and the door shall be open. Seek and you will find. Knock. Or excuse me. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. So many times we as Christians get caught in the space of complaint. I don't like things the way they are. I'm frustrated. I wish things would. I need. But we actually don't ask or seek or knock for God. There is a... uh, There's a story that one of my professors told me, and it really hit me hard. A story when he was a kid. He wanted so bad to buy a bike because his bike broke, and he was a paper boy, and that's how he made his money. And so he was saving and saving and doing every job he could. And every day he passed a $20 bill on the counter. And he just kept passing it over and over again. Working and working and working tirelessly, working and working and working tirelessly, stressed, scared. Finally, he broke down. And he looked at his parents and said, I need your help. I can't afford it. I'm working so hard, but I can't do it. And the dad just smiled and goes, son, it's been on the counter this whole time. Just grab it. It's yours. And we do that with God so frequently. God, I need you. Help, 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 help. But we're not actually asking or looking for him. We're not actually seeking or knocking for him. So we feel lost and alone when in actuality, he's right there waiting to come in. I covered more today than I've ever covered in a sermon. I didn't get to cover any of them in depth. But you know what? That's not today's sermon. There will be sermons in the future where we'll talk about all of these things in more length. This morning, I wanted to kind of do this as a check-in on where you are where you are. What are you struggling with? What is your but statement? As I was talking today and I was prattling off all of these things that Jesus said, one of them is going to have hit you. Maybe more than one. Maybe there were a couple times in here you're like, man, I really need to work on that. Well, you know what? The good news about being a preacher is it's not my responsibility to answer every question from the pulpit. Thank goodness. My job is simply to help you find Jesus more authentically. This week, whatever jumped out at you, whatever you were thinking about, whatever hits you, whatever the Spirit is moving in you to think about and say, hey, you need to get better at this, you need to think about this, you need to study this, do it. Pray about it. And learn from it. Because Jesus wants the best version of you, not for his sake, but for yours. Because each one of us has a life that we could be living. And a life that we aren't living. Today's a unique opportunity, as is every day. But today is a very special day. Because in this moment, you have no distractions, and it's just you and Christ. Where are you with Christ? He just spent the better part of a lesson talking through a very high-pitched, highly energetic 26-year-old. But he has his words in front of you right now. He has things he expects from you, things he desires for you, a life that he envisions you could be living. And he has a hope and a love that he wants to share with you. This morning, let me ask you a very simple question. You're here. Do you want to know more about that love? Do you have a desire to fall more in love, live a life worth living? If the answer is yes, and you, wherever you are in your journey, whether you haven't any idea really about Jesus at all, whether you have a great understanding but have fallen away, whether you just needed a reminder, or whether you'd like to start your journey with Christ in baptism, wherever you are, 
Today's the day that the words of Jesus can transform you. Believe the expert of life living. And let's fall more in love with Christ together today. If there's any way we can help you, the leaders stand in the back. Let's stand and let's sing together.